Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Alex Serp. Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, yeah. Thanks, Alex. Uh, it's an honor to be on. Uh, so I am an experienced researcher at Ogilvy. My role as an experienced researcher really fits within the experience arm at Ogilvy. Um, so we focus on not just the branding aspect, but we're really at the intersection of brands, customers, data, technology, um, really looking at ways to craft experiences to grow businesses. Um, so also another thing is that, you know, experienced researcher, um, that role uh can be called user experience researcher. So you might have heard UX, like UX design or design researcher as well. Interesting. So can you can you explain the value that UX research has to a business? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, where the value point really comes in is being able to connect brands or, you know, companies and products with their end users, really getting to speak with the people that are going to be interacting with products or services. And from there, gather their insights, you know, really understanding their behaviors, their needs, their wants to be able to inform further design iteration. You know, it's kind of like you can have a great intuition around design. Maybe you think that, you know, a product um, is, maybe you have the best idea on how to design a product, but if you're not speaking to your end users, you really don't know. You're kind of going off of assumptions and unchecked bias, and that's where design flaws can come in down the line. Interesting. So do you have any good examples of maybe like real life examples of poor UX design that you know, when, when this is overlooked, what can be the negative consequences? Oh, yeah, totally. And I think uh, one that has been pretty relevant uh, as we are seeing more and more streaming platforms come up. But, you know, Blockbuster, think how we used to rent DVDs, rent movies. Um, somebody had gone to them and I think, okay, I'm going to butcher this and I should really know who that was because I think it might have been the Netflix person, but don't quote me on that. But essentially, you know, the idea came to Blockbuster, hey, we should really start looking at streaming services. And they didn't move on to that next step. Well, you know, next we've got Netflix, which became, you know, they moved from their, you know, boxes where you go and take out a DVD while they moved to streaming services to a digital platform. And that's where you can kind of see they went with what users were doing. They went with the trends in digital technologies and what um, people, how people were behaving. And uh, we saw Blockbuster fall off because they did not adapt to the digital trends, to user behaviors. So that was just one area where, you know, is it's kind of coming to mind as the most relevant. Yeah, so if you were a consultant for... Um... Uh, was it uh, Blockbuster in 1995 or something? Um, what would you recommend? Oh, man. I mean, that would be a thing where you'd really want to speak to as many of people coming into Blockbuster, um, get some interviews going, but also really understand, like, you know, this is where research can take both a quantitative and a qualitative angle. Um, it's important to speak with people uh, to get their behavioral data. So um, really understanding from a qualitative perspective, um, you know, what 
they see as most meaningful and important, um, what they see are the strengths, but then also what are their pain points. But from a quantitative angle, maybe being able to see where are drop-offs happening, where are people maybe canceling memberships, looking at the why, because that's where you know we can learn, are they going to new places? Are they going to competing, um, competitor sites? Are they you know, starting, you know, more streaming. So that's where I think back in the day, we could have learned more about the changes in consumer behavior and kind of see where we might need to pivot as a business to reach the needs of those um, consumers. This is making me think of that quote from um, the Model T, uh, for, for the Model T from Henry Ford, uh, which is that if you asked people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a faster horse because they didn't know they could have a car and so you have to anticipate to some degree uh what the market will want um and i and and i think that's part of the problem with best buy as well not just um not not looking at like what consumers want to do because i agree with you that that also like behaviorally they don't want to go into the store but also they would have had to make this huge bet on where you know technology is going. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I mean, we see in innovation today, it's like you have to combine both a sense of intuition, but that intuition really should be based in that evidence that comes from your target audience or, you know, people. Really, we're talking about people-centered design and people-centered design is at the core of innovation. And you can have the big thinkers, um, you know, the the Netflixes, the Airbnbs, the Ubers or Lyfts, or, you know, the people who are taking these new services um, because they're following that trend. They're seeing where there's a need and they're tapping into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very valuable, I think, to really see into the consumer's mindset and and that is critical for a business it's also not just um you know innovation is like a huge value of course everybody wants to go there and and have their product be this big and great thing but it's also you know just the basic things like looking at you know how can you find information in the quickest easiest way and when we start talking about um information that maybe patients need before going to a doctor or going to a hospital or, you know, understanding, you know, now in times of COVID, understanding where they can go to get their shots or the vaccinations. Um, all of this is an experience, right? So it, when we have these digital products or these online sites that are confusing or difficult to use, that's a design problem. That is something where we're not meeting the users in a critical time of need. Um, and that's just, you know, one area where design is often not at the forefront, but it's just to show that everything that we're experiencing has been designed in some way and there has to be thought put into it. Um, so the more that we can talk with the people and understand real people experiences and needs and behaviors, from there we can understand, you know, the most meaningful moments to reach them and how to reach them in the right way. I think that's a great description of the value that UX brings to a business. I want to ask about um, your career path to get into user experience and research. What, you know, where, where did you go to school? How did you get started in your career? 
Yeah, totally. So actually, um, it's probably not the most standard way, but um, I, I think from everybody that I've talked to in the UX field, um, from designers to UX writers to researchers, we all came from somewhere slightly different. Like you can come from psychology, you can come from a visual design background, um, from a business background. I came from a library and information science background. So I actually got my master's degree from Pratt Institute in library and information sciences. And that was because I, I really wanted to work with public libraries. I had worked um, one of my first jobs was as a page at my local library out on Long Island. And then when I lived in the city, I worked with New York Public Library's um, Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And something that I just really enjoyed doing with my time was uh, being able to connect people with information they needed. Um, you know, just going to say, just being able to help people find meaningful information and, you know, being able to navigate all of these vast data collected that we have over years and, and being surrounded by, you know, works of literature and, and very important resources. Um, I have a background in English literature as a bachelor's. Um, so I went to school for that. And in my first semester, I saw a course on usability testing, which is a method that we use very often in UX research. And I thought, hmm, that sounded really interesting. And I really wasn't sure what my passions were at the time, but I always you know, followed my curiosity, which is something that Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in her book, Big Magic. Um, but I took that course and we had a required reading, which was Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things. And from there, I just realized, wow, I had no idea how much was designed around me with this thought, how many design failures there are out there and the value of good design and that I can help connect people with the right things and connect those dots um, through a very different field of work, which is UX research. So um, that's kind of what started me on the career path. I would say that's when I actually figured out what my passion was at 25 years old, uh, you know, in my first semester of graduate school. I had no idea I would go into it, but that's uh, that started the journey. And from there, I just kept on doing things there and there, like uh, volunteering or going into, um, you know, what there are hackathons, uh, there are also UXathons, and just trying things out on my own time and learning about the field as much as I can. And that's how I came into it through, through just a lot of networking, through a lot of learning. And eventually I had actually my first uh, UX research role model, Paige DuPont, uh, was a previous researcher at Ogilvy. And she reached out when she was leaving the company and said, um, hey, you know, we're looking for some UX researchers and of all levels, and I think you'd be a great fit. So that's how I ended up getting into the role here. Wow. Yeah, awesome. it kind of came around full circle. The moral of the story is that uh, that quote about preparation and opportunity. It's uh, luck, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So you are educated, passionate about um, language, right? And, um, uh, and obviously that translated into, uh, you know, they, I, I see, I see it, right. It's like academics research. It, it really does fit together. And, um, and so, and, and I think that you were preparing for it, but didn't know exactly where those skills would, would fit in, um, in a role. And, and I think it, it's really interesting to see, um, you know, how, how you are able to, um, how you were able to master UX. 
Absolutely. And, and another part to it was not just about the academic side, but also using some of the skills that um, you know were brought into my work with libraries. I also worked at Strand Bookstore as a bookseller for a time. And uh, two things that were similar in those different roles um, was being able to work with people and being able to adapt and be flexible uh, per different needs and per different requests. And that's something I always enjoyed. I actually loved working at Strand during the holiday season. We're about to go into the holidays, so I'm thinking of it. Um, it was so busy and people would be asking, oh, do you have a recommendation for, you know, a, a fantasy book for, you know, X, Y, Z age group or something. And just being able to dive into those conversations with people was just always so much fun to me. So that's kind of like how I look at UX research as well is like you're going in and learning from people. You know, you're really taking that expert hat off. Um, I might be the research expert, but so often I do not see myself as an expert. I see like whoever I'm talking with as the expert and thinking, what can I learn today? What can I learn from them? Um, and how can I, you know, use what I'm learning and take those insights to help to help them in the long run to really take those to the necessary people and build out the right experiences for them. That's amazing. And, and that's a great perspective, I think, to take um, in, in learning from others. It's definitely a lesson in humility and patience as well. Are you a patient person? I uh, would say yes. I, I think that there are a lot of ways that that's a skill that kind of should be, you know, has been very helpful to my line of work is being able to, uh, you know, allow people to think their thoughts aloud you know, um, one method such as usability testing that I've talked about, we're watching and observing people as they're going through, um, you know, a website or a product and they're completing certain tasks. We ask them to think their thoughts aloud so we can follow along. And there are times where we're seeing something that might not be the way the product designers um, had intended for something to be done or completed. And this is something that I always have to kind of educate people on the calls to say, um, don't jump in and say something or don't make any corrections because we really just have to observe what they're doing. We want to see those processes in place. And that takes a lot of patience just to kind of, you know, bite your tongue um, what is the saying? A restraint of pen and tongue? But yeah. <laughs> I can imagine you <laughs> just watching a bunch. Because imagine if you just have like a not a not optimal <laughs> layout and just like people just keep getting it wrong and you have to just not say anything. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, well, that's those are the best things, right? That's what we want to see. And sometimes it's not always great when you have the, you know, a product designer on the line or if you have the product owner on a call. Right. I mean, it's it's a little bit like, you know, they're going to see these things and think, oh, my gosh, well, you know, maybe it's the person who's not using it correctly. But that's what we do not go towards. It's not that it's a, a human error. It's some sort of design error. And what are we learning from that? It's like, are, are enough people saying this, this page doesn't make sense to me? Or, you know, if there are a lot of people who see a button that like does not look intuitive to them, um, you know, that is an indicator of where, you know, the design is not meet, meeting the user's needs. So it's always, yeah, it's always just trying to like, you know, be patient and and just look at everything that's being done as, as an, a golden nugget to really think like, where can we take this and, and make this easier, more accessible, I mean, useful, usable, and hopefully delightful. That's, that's what we want to get to. 
I love that. Yeah. Uh, I let me, let me ask you another question about um, uh, personality type for UX research. If somebody's listening to this and they're interested in getting into UX research, I know we touched on patience. That's that's clearly um, a trait that that one would need in this role. What are some other traits that that you think would make somebody successful in in a UX role? Oh, okay. So, hmm. well. I think it's still something that I am learning, but I think, you know, the things that I have seen work for me, but also I've seen work for, you know, the people that I consider mentors, personality types, um, definitely patience, but empathy, of course, is at the heart of any UX role, just really being able to keep the user first and foremost, keep the people. I mean, user, we always say user, but really people. Um, And, Another aspect is uh, being curious. So always questioning why something is being designed. Um, and you know, sometimes this is something that I'm still learning to do, um, to speak up during a call with product owners, but just always question why a choice is being made and you know, how is this going to affect the, the user's experience in the end. Um, so patience, empathy, um, curiosity and, you know, um, I actually had like a, a few that I was thinking about. Um, (laughs) yeah, I feel like I'll probably come back with that fourth one, but those are the three that come to mind right now. Oh, I'm sorry. That fourth one, um, adaptability 100% because that is where you're going to get into a conversation and, that's the thing is that you can have a discussion guide, you can have your interview questions set up, or you can have your approach all lined out, but things change. Timelines change. You might encounter um, somebody who has a very different process to something, and that's where you're going to learn the most is just seeing those different processes and seeing how people are interacting in real time. And you know, very different from when I was in university, you know, in university, we have our project goals, we have a deadline, and we really stick to that. But in the real world, timelines get shifted all the time. And with research, we have to be able to adapt pretty quickly to those changes. And if something comes up in a conversation, and you know, you kind of get thrown a curveball, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's work with this curveball. Let's flow with it. How can we still find what we're trying to find, you know, stick to our research objectives and goals, um, but just adapt in a way that meets the person's needs. Yeah. And on that note, um, what are some of the deliverables that you, you would, um, create over the course of a, of a project with a client? Yeah. So these can be different things per the needs, of course, and per the project's, um, you know, original goals. So some common deliverables are, um, personas. So looking at, this is where you can conduct a whole bunch of interviews or, you know, maybe you're doing some, uh, additional quantitative data, but really being able to understand, an audience segmentation and create sort of like those um, persona character types, being able to create uh, something that people can look at, a team can look at and root their designs based on what would be accumulation of um, a specific user type. So you'd look at, you know, Kevin is a um, a marketing analytics team member, making this up on the fly, right? And you're 
jotting down, you know, what is like a snapshot of his daily life? What are his motivations? What are his needs? Um, and then also what are his pain points? So being able to understand all those and keep that at the core as you're going through designs. Uh, we also do user journey mapping. So being able to look at a journey from end to end, this could be anywhere from um, initial awareness of a product or a service all the way through um, to loyalty. So once you actually get to a point where, you know, this person has been using your product and they're advocating for it, they are enjoying it, um, and they are a loyal customer at that point. But there are so many middle points in between and where a product has to come in and, um, you know, how a person is experiencing that product in the middle points. Those are extremely important to take into consideration. Um, some other deliverables that are more common, um, just, you know, on the fly things is, you know, being able to build out some quick research decks with your reports and findings for usability testing. Um, we will pull together all of those findings and have like a slide-by-slide -slide analysis of, you know, showing the specific areas of a product and highlighting um, the spots where users were having either good experiences or we're experiencing some challenges um, as well as some of those neutral thought starter areas like, hmm, you know, this one, um, somebody might not have understood the total value of it, but found the content slightly interesting. I mean, there's a ton of different deliverables as well that I, I'm like, just there's so many that can come out of it um, from quantitative to qualitative. But I think, you know, a lot that we focus on is really pulling the synthesis in a way that is going to meet the client's needs at some point. And, you know, right now it's, it's a lot of, we work in, you know, PowerPoints and keynote slides all the time, pulling these findings together in a way that will tell a story to the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and on the note, because I I think one of the m most underrated skills is client management, um, and just being really um, effective with communication without ruffling feathers. That's something that I'm learning how to do um, <laughs> every day, and um, and I noticed that you are quite good at it. You're quite measured, oh, even. Thank you. Even earlier today uh, in this conversation, instead of saying good experiences and bad experiences, you said good experiences and challenges, right, to overcome or something like to that, to that effect. And that is, um, that's not how I would say it. I would say good and bad experiences. And, um, and that's, is that a important part of your role to effectively communicate with the client and deliver, you know, what what they need to hear in a way that is, you know, agreeable, that, that is not going to ruffle too many feathers. Cause when you're dealing with, you know, you know, some, some executives, they don't want to hear uh, something other than what, you know, they thought was going to be the answer. Hugely, hugely important. Yes. And uh, that I would say falls somewhere into personality type. Right. Um, but, you know, communication is extremely important. Like you really need to tailor your message and communication points to the target audience. You know, I'm going to talk to a, you know, when I'm going into a user interview, I'm going to talk to that person very differently than the way I'm going to talk to somebody when I'm going into a client meeting. And it's, I mean, what it really comes down to is just keeping in mind that 
we all have these similar goals. We want to create experiences that will be good for the business, but very good for the users in the long run. Some, because you know, good experience will grow the business. So that's what needs to be focused on. Um, when I go into client calls, you know, same thing as when I was coming into this is just thinking it's a conversation and understanding that there are business needs um, from the clients and how can I best situate the findings in a way that will will make them want to take action, right? And I think that people are much more likely to take action when they can relate to it a little bit more, when they can resonate with it more. And so being careful about word choices, such as like, um, you know, you don't want to necessarily just say, here's all those pain points, right? You can kind of turn it into, I mean, they are pain points, but you can turn it into, oh, these are some areas for um, consideration. Here are some opportunities, right? Like, because what they are is opportunities. A problem is an opportunity. How can we jump into it and uh, build something from here? How can we enhance or improve um, and from it? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Let me, yeah. Let me crystallize this. It is, it is better to have an optimistic perspective when you are a builder like when your job is building these new experiences you need to have an optimistic perspective that is that's that is the attitude that one should have when they are building anything really i think that yeah i've, I've seen people with an optimistic outlook towards you know the, the projects and going into it with that kind of attitude um i've seen how i've learned so much actually from for example my manager who is just really good at that, going into any conversation and being able to fine tune it to perfectly meet the person that we're talking with. Um, and she does have a lot of these conversations filled with optimism, but also at the same time, you know, that's, that's a personal personality trait that, you know, maybe not everybody has and that's fine. And it's just kind of what it really comes down to is being able to go into a project and with that main goal of like, we're all working towards the same thing. How can we work towards it together? which is, you know, bringing in a collaborative aspect. Everybody wants to feel like their voice is mm -hmm. heard, especially in business. Exactly, exactly. And that's where, it, just as I was saying before, um, I really take that expert hat off in so many ways because everybody, everybody that I'm talking to, whether it is, um, you know, a person who is using the product and I'm conducting an interview or if I am talking to stakeholders and conducting stakeholder workshops, they're the experts and I have so much to learn from them. And if I can make somebody, if I can make at least one person feel heard each day, I feel like I'm doing my job. Yeah. And that's, and that is your <laughs> job. That's, that might not be enough. People. Exactly. Exactly. I know. It's just like, that's the thing is, you know, one person is a low bar. Um, but you know, that's also considering that no matter what, um, you know, we're always learning and we're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And we just have to learn from the mistakes. That's the thing is that, you know, I feel so lucky to have a great team that, you know, allows the room to try things, to really move um, with processes and, and run with the approaches. Um, if I have, you know, an idea for a certain objective or if we need to meet um, a project by a specific deadline or we have to meet a certain deadline, sorry, um, and I want to try something new, um, you know, 
run with it, try it out. And if it doesn't work, okay, well, let's, let's fix this and figure that out for next time so that we can avoid any mistakes. But, you know, when it works, it's, it's like, okay, let's build on this. You know, I think, um, you know, a project that you and I were on actually together. Uh, so that was something where we were working within um, myself and the designer were working on a pretty quick deadline. And we handled that project in a very different manner where, you know, oftentimes it's, okay, the researcher goes, does the research, um, comes back with that readout, hands it off to the designer, designer starts making some designs, um, shares with the client. Instead, what we did was, you know, let's just try something. We, there are so many new digital techniques and stuff like Miro. We can use a Miro board to collaborate, um, you know, remote. And so we jumped into that. And as the research was happening, the designer was able to see those insights in real time, see what was going on, and be able to start iterating on the designs ahead of time so that we can go to the readout with both the research findings and already some designs in place for what are we doing with that research. Um, so I think I also just jumped into another tangent, but you know, being able to being able to try new things and, you know, improve on what's working and reflect on the things that might not have worked as best in the past. Yeah, adaptability is definitely the theme there, um, especially, you know, that's and that maybe that's a good uh, thing for us to talk about, because we're have you you've been in UX for a few years now, right? Mm, yep. Yeah, so about since 2017, when I started grad school. Yep. Nice. Nice. So how have you seen the work and particularly like on the ground, like the tools that you use, how have you seen those change um, pre post uh, coronavirus? <laughs> Was it B BC? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not? yeah. Um, well, one thing that has been the biggest change is just finding new ways to go out and do research. You know, when I say go out and do research, you know, pre-COVID, we can easily, you know, set up shop in, you know, a coffee shop or go to wherever our target audience is and, you know, do some quick usability testing on the fly or just reach out um, and say to somebody like, hey, do you have five minutes, you know, to take a quick survey or to talk with me about XYZ? Um, it's very different now, right? We need to find new ways to meet people um, in their spaces and, a lot of that is coming through online recruiting or online tools. Um, you know, WebEx and Zoom and Microsoft Teams have become like our best friends. And, you know, maybe it's it, it definitely hinders that ability to see somebody in their natural habitat. But it, it's at least, you know, one way that we're trying to speak with the user one-to-one which is very different than if we were just running a survey and collecting unmoderated data. But that has been the biggest shift. And I really do miss that aspect of like going out and conducting like sort of guerrilla style research. Um, you know, I, I did that for a project where I went to one of um, Pratt's campuses because there's a Manhattan and a Brooklyn campus and was just running around asking people, hey, do you have like a few minutes to talk with me about, you know, the Pratt Library website? And I didn't have any incentives to give them except for, I think it was sometime around Halloween. So I had like a giant bag of candy. <laughs> mm, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Sugar. <laughs> exactly. Work. It's a lot <laughs> more difficult to do that nowadays. 
Yeah, what what is affinity mapping, by the way? Yeah, so that is a great technique when we are going through the synth process. So um, the way that, you know, I see it in the past and, you know, there are several ways to do it, but grouping like categories and kind of being able to find the patterns in that. So going through an interview, um, pulling out notes or tidbits. So maybe you're pulling out you know, those challenges or those strong points, writing that on a post-it, and then looking at all of the post-its across the board and being able to group them into those similar categories. And from there, you can see like, okay, maybe, you know, this person um, saw a high value point in how this tool is allowing them to um, communicate with their team. Um, but on the flip side, there is a pain point in the navigation. So being able to just group those post-its into separate little things, it's like affinity mapping, being able to find the patterns and bring those patterns together. Very cool. And you, you mentioned uh, synth. Can you go into how, you know, how big of a part, you know, that, that plays in, in your role? I'm, I'm just like, yeah, like unpack it. Yeah. The synth process is, you know, once you've collected all of the data, the raw data, the recordings, the transcripts, the notes, being able to look at it all, embed yourself in it, pull out the themes and synthesize that into, essentially synthesize that into the themes, take the data and inform, um, use the data to inform insights. You're turning the data from just raw findings into actual insights that are going to help inform design decisions. So that's the synth process. And it can you know, definitely take a long time. You're, you're sorting through a lot of notes. You're sorting through a lot of recordings. But it's probably one of my favorite times because once you start to see the patterns emerge and you're seeing people share out similar things, whether they're similar strengths, um, pain points, or similar goals and motivations, um, you just start to form this picture of you know, what this research really found. And you get to say like, these are the aha moments that we're going to be bringing back to the team. It's like, you know, was there something that we just completely missed in our design that we're like, wait, people are actually using it in a totally new way. And, you know, how, how did we miss that? So that's the synth process is really being able to pull the insights from the data and look at how we can start developing and iterating from those insights to inform the next round of design. Yeah, that's that's very powerful and I want to out I want to underscore the similarity in our roles and I think it is exactly there. Um when you are cuz I well and and there's more too. So the way that you the way your role works generally speaking is you have the function of research and that means kind of coming up with what what are we going to ask collecting what you know collecting the data analyzing the data and producing insights that drive business decisions is that roughly would you agree kind of the role the the you play pretty spot on yeah so so that's very similar mm-hmm. to my role um so when in any analytics role your goal is to ask the right questions. You have to think of the right questions. 
you need to have some way of going about answering them, whether it's setting up interviews or in my case, it's opening up a couple tables in a database and uh, cleaning up the data and putting it into a visualization. And then we both, once we gather our data and make sure that it's clean, then we analyze or synthesize and really spend time answering the questions that we asked earlier using the data that we have and confirming or rejecting our null hypothesis. Yep. Um, and uh, so, you know, were we, were we, uh, well, can, can we, <laughs> okay, I'm going to be honest. We are not scientists. <laughs> um, yep. So I don't, I don't ever, I've never once actually disproven a null hypothesis in my life. I, I would like to, <laughs> to be honest. I'm now, now this is making me want to do that. But yeah, to be honest, the way you do it is you have assumptions. You have like, I, I think that we have like a pocket of really high lifetime value clients in this, you know, industry. Um, you know, let's, let's see if we can disprove that. And that's generally the extent to which I think the hypothesis typically go. Um, but you have, you have an idea of what you expect. And um, I was talking to somebody else uh, on a different podcast a, a while back, and um, he, he mentioned um, if, if you, it, it was Archit, uh, so that's a different, that's also in season three, I'm not sure when it'll come out, uh, and he's, he, said, um, he said, if you have a theory about what's going on in the data, and when you, in your, by your first pass, it confirms what you're thinking, then there's probably something wrong. Usually, if you dive deep enough into the data, you will find where you're kind of fault faulty. Like, there's usually some place where you're wrong, and if the data just confirms everything you thought, like, there you you know you have to take another look. Right, and you also have to consider, you know, from I, I love that we're kind of seeing both the quant and the qual aspects here. Um, I think you know you're seeing you're speaking a lot um, from the experience of a quantitative side and. You know, within qualitative, it's also if you're seeing things that are confirming your assumption, um, you really have to check who are you talking with and ask the question of who is being excluded from this research? Because that's a big thing is like, you know, um, just an example is we want to understand some something about a tool. And I'm giving an example that is going to be vague because of, you know, NDAs. But basically, you know, looking at only people who are top users of a product who could maybe speak to the value, um, you know, we're missing a whole section of the, the rest of the user base, such as maybe people who use it infrequently or even the non-users. And we could be missing something super important there that would actually say, oh, our assumption is not really accurate. And, you know, there is a, a whole area to tap into and maybe a lot of problems that we didn't know about that that target audience can help us understand. Yeah, that's reminding me of Microsoft because they are so over-engineered that unless you are a technical or business person, you don't like it because it's not really designed for you. Um, Apple is much more appealing to that market that wants like a more fun, um, easy-to-use computer, and they're much more user experience uh, savvy. Oh, I have a great Apple um, example. So I actually just got a new phone yesterday. I, up I upgraded to the iPhone 13 yesterday. And 
I had first gone to um, AT&T store. So we have this local mall um, out on Long Island and uh, there was the AT&T store, which I tried first. And I was with my mom. She also wanted to upgrade her phone. Now, the thing is that at AT&T, uh, to get into the account, we had to give them you know, our license, our driver's license. And instead of just looking at it, they needed to scan it. Um, you know, I, I was like, okay, well, that's interesting, but sure. Um, <laughs> my mom was like, I don't feel comfortable with that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think they even scanned it at the yeah, airport. Yeah, it was so. It was just like, yeah, really. I should, I should have questioned. I should have questioned these decisions. But um, you know, of course, my mom did, and she's like, I don't feel comfortable with this. And you know, it was all around not a great experience, right? She didn't want to do that, and that was our reason to actually leave. So she was like, you know what? I'm going to try something elsewhere. Um, for me, it was they didn't have the phone, and I would have to order it. So I was like, let me try the Apple Store. So go to the Apple Store totally different experience. You walk in and, you know, right from the bat, it's like there is a dedicated person to help you set up an appointment. Um, then you, ha they help you to check in, to buy a product, to set up with your AT&T account. Um, and they did not need to scan my license. They just needed to simply look at my name on it to verify that it was me. Um, and everything was just a lot more seamless in process. So Altogether, very good. And that's another thing is like we talk a lot about user experience in terms of digital experiences. But I mean, user experience is also so much about our actual physical experiences when we're going to a store, how we're interacting with the process. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, like, would AT&T be mad? And then I was <laughs> like, well, they shouldn't be. That's an extremely valuable insight. That coming from a user experience researcher, that's like free advice. I, that's I was like, I, I mean, hey, I've had AT&T for years and I couldn't. Yeah, there we go. So AT&T, I'm a loyal customer. But at the same time, I mean, <laughs> thinking just about, yeah, those experiences. If I was a researcher for AT&T, I would, you know, consider that moment and think like, wow, we just had somebody leave our store um, and not go through with the process of, you know, logging into an account, something like that. What are the pain points? You know, why why did they feel hesitant? Um, you know, why didn't they trust where the data was going? Things like that. You can start asking those questions to understand how to improve and optimize the processes moving forward. Do you have any other examples of um, now? Now I'm interested. Like <laughs> any other examples of companies that may have like substandard user experiences? I have one example. Um, if if you don't mind, I'll I would really love quick. to hear your example. Uh, Okay, so I was at the Lululemon store recently. This is a big initiative for me. I really like Lululemon. We the same, and, Yeah, it's so great. And um, and so we were we were looking for a specific pair of pants because they never have a lot of men's clothing, and they and I'm like a very average size. I'm like a medium, so it's tough to find my size in store. So they, so I was looking for the specific thing and we went over to the TV to, to see if it's available in any, it was like a touch screen, like computer on the wall and you could see what's in stock online in nearby stores. It was basically just like having the website, but on a big TV, that's touch screen. So we were typing in like the, you know, design, you know, let's say hoodie, uh, in gray medium. And, and then instead of like search on the right, you know, like there's always when there's, there's a search, uh, window, like there's like that search, what would you call it? Like a bar, a search mm -hmm. bar. 
there it is uh and on the right it it would say go or it would have like a green arrow or something where you would like submit but instead of that green arrow it was actually a red x and it deleted the entry and the the associate that was taking care of me like he was typing this in he pressed the red button and was like oh damn and i was like that's not your fault (laughs) that is poor ux design (laughs) they should have put the enter key there because that's what you're expecting because that's just like what iMessage does you're you're expecting that you're not expecting to delete it so so um that was just like a really special moment for me because i noticed like poor ux or or how check that check it out less than optimal ux design in the wild yeah and and that was really you special. Start, once you start to learn more about it and understand like how mental models work so you have a mental model around um how that button should work and what should happen and what you can expect to happen right um and once something in the real world breaks that mental model then you're just like wait what and oftentimes um just like you know the associate that came over um to help you Oftentimes we kind of are like, oh, bummer. And we kind of look at it as like, you know, our fault, but really it's not, you know, our our fault. It's actually how it was designed. And we can kind of understand, um, you know, where the problems lie when we can look at something like that. I mean, I think that it's probably going to be very cliche to bring up Don Norman, but that the book that he wrote, The Design of Everyday Things, when I first read in that book um, where he talked about what are now known as Norman doors, but essentially when you go to open a door um, and let's say it looks like something that you pull open, but it's actually a push door. I mean, how often is that the most infuriating thing? It's like, you know, oftentimes you'd feel stupid for not knowing how to just use a door, right? But if there is like a visual cue that makes it look like you're supposed to pull it as opposed to push it, I mean, of of course you're going to try to pull it. So it's just being able to find all those examples in real life. And that's the same thing that I have with this salt and uh, salt and pepper shaker that my parents have that looks overly designed and complicated. There is a little, little knob that looks like a button you press down. So I think it's one of those like, you know, electrical things or mechanical things that you press a button and it'll, you know, that's what I thought. So I'm trying to press this button. Little did I know after like an hour of fidgeting with this thing, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it took a really long time. Um, It wasn't a button. I really just simply flip the shaker over and it works like a normal salt and pepper (laughs) shaker, but it is overly designed to look really complicated. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So that was one real world example. Uh, Try not to overly design yeah. something. Sometimes simplicity is so key. Yeah. I got a good one. Christmas lights. <gasps> what what a horrible experience. Sorry. Sorry. I, I got to paint it that way, though. I mean, think about how, how painstaking it is to, like, wrap a tree with a rope <laughs> every year when it's cold. And we just do it because that's the only way to do it. Yeah, that's the funny thing about human behavior. I finding delight in those things. I actually just ordered boxes of Christmas lights from Amazon last night because I'm so excited to wrap the Christmas tree. Nice. Yeah, we already got our Christmas lights up. I, I don't care. It's on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's so funny. Like, I, why do you find it like 
so so you kind of gave the reasons already, you know, cold and you know, just wrapping something around. Yeah. But you know, where are your pain points for those? Like what what is so like frustrating about Christmas lights? I'd be curious. Here's the thing. I was thinking about this last night. What if it was just like little digital cicadas and then they just like just you know, did their own thing and they would just like land all over your tree and they would just, it would look like you had Christmas lights. It would just be little independent, like mini drones or something. Wow. Um, or, or, um, I, you know, I don't want to actually solution further than you that. I, I know. Automating <laughs> the experience yeah, but, of Christmas decorating. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's not the best way to do it, but you know, just some way for it to be easier than, you know, and also here's another problem. You put more than four Christmas light strings on a tree, guarantee one of them's going to fail before the end of the season. Oh, guarantee. Mm -hmm. You're going to have one string of lights. You're not going to know what's wrong with it. It's going to be one faulty light and there's a thousand. So you, you don't know. And, uh, and then the whole string's not going to work. It's not going to be worth your time. And then you have to basically just, you, you can't rewrap it because then it's even more complicated. I, and I've dealt with this, you know, because I've, I put on the Christmas lights last year. I actually kept them on all year and they worked this year too, which is kind of cool. Um, apparently you're not supposed to do that though. Uh, my sister told me, um, because it's, I guess, gauche, um, or that's not, that's probably not the right word. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just not polite. Like you're supposed to take them down. And that's the whole point of the pain point. Like if we can't keep them up, then they should be easier to put on and, and take mm -hmm. them off. I hear you. Okay. So really looking at something that can make the process a little bit more seamless. I, I kind of like the mm -hmm. idea of having the little glowing cicadas yeah Wouldn't that be i cool? think that would be great but i also just really or, enjoy the aspect of putting on christmas music uh bothering the heck mm. out of my parents with it and just wrapping mm. the the tree up in lights because that's also just a part of the process yeah it's a tradition that's that's the thing is it's the tradition exactly and everybody just has different different behaviors, different ways of doing things. And, you know, maybe where I find the joy in it, others won't. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for me, like, <laughs> I'm, I, I think you're more like the rest of my, like my sister and my mom are very like holiday um, oriented. And for me, I, I really like the holiday season, but just, it's just doesn't come as naturally to me. Um, you know, and so, um, I'm, when I think about, uh, the, the things that you do around the holidays, I'm thinking about it from a more like physical perspective, <laughs> you know, um, one, one idea is like, what if you had like a bunch of like thumbtack lights that you like, cause, okay. Are trees conductive? I don't know. Maybe a little bit. And if maybe you could just have like these thumbtack lights, you just like stick into your tree and like, you just like jam an electrical wire into do you think that's possible <laughs> i don't know if that's possible That'd trying cool, to get though. into all these like <laughs> tactical ways you're like very tactical in doing christmas oh yeah i i think it's a flaw i'm trying to think about like business ideas but i keep solutioning and it's really hard to stay at the problem level that's probably something you deal with too. oh yeah absolutely like to, can you yeah can you talk to yeah that? totally i mean like once you start this is something that comes up so often, especially when you have um, designers and people from the product team on the call, which of course we always encourage to do because when they can actually listen to and, 
and observe users behaving like that really is a big part of the advocacy step. But what can sometimes happen is they will hone in on, you know, one thing that was done during a usability test um, without really looking at the study as a whole. And then we'll start, you know, going into what are the design solutions that can come out of this. So that's where it is really important. And not just me as a UX researcher, but really the UX team um, as a whole to always keep the objective in mind keep our problem statement in mind and continue with project. We always have to keep our project goals um, front and center. And that's where, you know, having everything documented and planned out in a very methodical way um, that can just help everybody stay on alignment so that you're not kind of having those one-off um, shoots of discussion. And, and cause you can really see the train go off the rails once that starts happening. Right. So and all of a sudden you're talking about a, a potato launcher with a bunch of LEDs. Oh my gosh. And that's not a good, nobody, nobody wants, to, wants that. That's a waste of time. That can be painful. <laughs> that can be really painful. <laughs> that's yeah. Off track. <laughs> so what I'm, what I'm getting from you is the only thing you can be certain of is the pain points and the things that need to be fixed. And so that's really worth the majority, the lion's share of your time. And then it's really at the very end when you're very clear about exactly what needs to change that you think of that, you know, solution to fix it. But if you don't have an extremely clear understanding of the pain points and the problem, then it's, there's way too many options for solutions. Well, that's also the tricky thing because it's never going to be clear or precise because the thing is that, you know, we can only, do so much, um, do so many interviews. We can only conduct so much research with however many people. Um, and that, you know, depends upon resources, of course, you know, if you do a, a survey, you can reach hundreds of people, but you know, what really comes out of research oftentimes is more questions. <laughs> but the thing is that we end up getting more questions that can help us address even further. Usually what we find from, you know, in the end, in terms of solution wise, and what can help inform design decisions is just the next best iteration, right? So we're getting closer and closer, but we always end up with more questions. And that's just kind of, you know, a little bit of a something about the line of work that we're doing is what can we learn that is meaningful right now? Um, how can we improve upon this process? And of course, there are a lot of high stakes things out there that you have to get right, you know, like such as building, um, you know, airline engineering or being able to build a panel of for, for mechanics at like a power plant, you know, mm -hmm. um, a road, building a road. Exactly. Those are things you can't get wrong. Um, but that's the thing is, you know, you sometimes have to look at it as like, we might not always know the answer in the end. And that just might mean that, okay, we need to get more research in place to understand that even further. We just have a better understanding of what we need to dig into more. I think that's an amazing note to end on. I want to thank you. Thank you for coming on, Alex. This has been great. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This has been awesome. And I hope that, you know, I, I can give some bit of, you know, examples to, 
anybody from any stage of their career. But, you know, I know that as me is an early starting career stage, um, this has just been an excellent time to come into UX research because there is just so much that we can do with it. And I think that it's just a growing field and with more technologies, you know, with AI, with just so much happening in marketing automation as well. Um, there's just so much that can sort of build upon our research approaches, our methods, and it's very exciting. It's a very exciting time. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I would love to have you on again so we can talk about the future of UX research. But I think uh, I we actually hit an hour, which is, which is my goal. I'm I'm oh, very wow. pleasantly surprised. Um, I great. think it's been a really great conversation. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, we'll talk to you soon.